Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Natasha Sutton-Williams and EJ Scott chat about Different Voices, a research project initiated by the Ditchling Museum of Arts and Craft in partnership with Disability Arts Online. They explore the careers of women artists of the 20th century's art and crafts movement who were associated with this small but significant museum in rural Sussex. We are doing this podcast for Disability Arts Online and Grey Eye, and today we're going to be talking about disability and different stories in the context of the Ditchling Museum of Arts and Crafts. Uh, My name is Natasha Sutton-Williams, and I'm a writer, performer, composer, and journalist, and I am queer and disabled. And I'm EJ, and I'm a curator and a dress historian, and I work as well in the field of making hidden histories more visible, particularly with a focus on LGBTIQ plus histories. And did you say that you're a dress historian? Yeah, so I, I look at the history of fashion and dress. Textiles comes into play with that, and that's that's particularly relevant to this project because basically it's a it's a crossover, Natasha, between my my two loves, my my love of arts and crafts and textiles and fashion, but also my passion for queer history and finding hidden voices that we can draw out from collections. I I I I often challenge this idea that that they're really necessarily hidden. I think mm. that actually they're, they're not researched. And this project is giving us a, a great opportunity to sort of test this idea and really sort of prove its validity. The, the, the stories about the people uh, that, that we're investigating are sitting there within the material culture and the visual culture in the museum's collections itself. Um, we may not be able to unpack their entire private lives but we can certainly use their work to investigate how the personal became productive, if you like. Could you just explain for people that aren't um, as versed in queer theory as you are about how we're looking at these different, specifically women's lives through a queer, queer theory lens? Yes, so we'll get on to talking specifically about the women that we're investigating, but you're right, to give it this context, um, to understand perhaps a little bit about the approach. Often critics who say that sexuality or gender identity isn't important to the story of art or the thinking around the history of art and design or arts and crafts, argue that the personal is private and therefore it doesn't have a place 
in, you know, we don't need to know those things. Mm. What I would argue is that actually the social context as well as the motivation and the mode of creation, of creativity, is inseparable from personal experience. There's a very good example of an academic, Jane Hattrick, and Jane Hattrick did their PhD on Norman Hartnell, the Couturier to the Queen. And when she found his archives in the loft of his house after his death, and she was going through and studying his notes and his record keeping and his photography, but also the costumes that were left behind, his designs that were left behind. Um, she, she was trying to put together how the dresses that she was seeing in his loft appeared to be bigger and of different proportions to the dresses of the women he was designing for. And with very, very robust research, she located that he was making them for himself and that actually he was his test subject, right? And so his queerness and his gender performativity was inseparable, (laughs) little did the Queen know, from, from, from the work that he was producing, right? And so it's this same idea that by understanding when we're looking at the records of, of designers and makers uh, that, that we may not get to the bottom of bed notch conspiracies. You know, we may not have evidence of, of the intimacies of their relationships, but what we do have evidence of is the way in which particularly women, um, this, is, this is very often the case when we're talking about women in relationships together, the intimacy that was, that was a bond between them and that shaped the life that they lived in turn had an impact mm. on the creative work that they produced. So I'm not after evidence, nor do I think it's anyone's business of who had sex with whom when. I'm, I'm after the evidence of the way in which lives are woven together that then become modes of production, including not just design production, but business production, the business of arts and crafts as well, you know. And so that's that's something that I'm I'm really keenly exploring when I'm looking at this project. It's it's how do these these private worlds and these intimacies between women and the lives they live then spread out as practice into the major production of the work that we're going to look at when we consider these designers and businesswomen. And I guess it's also worth saying this idea that because now, you know, we, this idea within history that um, whatever, whatever era that we look at, we as contemporaries think, oh, this is, we're the most modern that we could possibly be. We're the most progressive that we could possibly be. But actually at that time, they thought they were the most modern and the most progressive, wherever, whichever era that you look in. And also this idea that, you know, we make discoveries about health um, and about sexuality. And maybe we have like definitions and labels that 
other people didn't have. And so again, with this idea of, of disability and the context of mental health, which I think is now much more prevalent that people talk about mental health, but also the practices of artists and how their art actually affected their health. And we will talk about someone whose art literally had um, a detrimental effect to her body. Um, but let's talk about what the project is about that we are, that you and I are conducting at, at the Ditchley Museum of Arts and Crafts, um, who it's with and, and why it's important. So the Ditchling Museum is a museum that comprises of 20th century craftspeople um, and their work. And um, this is this is kind of turn of the century, turn of 20th century. And, and these craftspeople are, are trying to revive traditional craft. Um, they're concerned by industrialization and that traditional arts and crafts are going to be forgotten as modernity goes forth. Also, the craftspeople that were involved in Ditchling were of national repute and, and moved to Ditchling for its idyllic setting. And, and I think one thing that Ditchling Museum does very well, and one of the intentions of this project, which is called Different Voices, mm. is that they're willing to unpack the romanticization of the arts and crafts movement. So Ditchling does have this romantic, I, you know, it's the idyllic setting, it's in the countryside, it's this whole idea of back to nature and making. Um, what, what Ditchling Museum of Arts and Crafts, for, for as, as a, a long time admirer of, of the museum, what I think it does so well is explore the way that we can unpack the over-romanticization of craft mm -hmm. and so by looking in this project at different voices we're building on top of work that's already been done for example on the women's work exhibition um, and understanding that actually we think of arts and crafts almost as soft you know it's so caught up in this sort of idea that it was um, you know, a, a romantic movement that's aligned with William Morris and mm -hmm. and it's all anti-industrialization and it's mm -hmm. about the handmaid. And well, actually, the the, the women that we're, we're looking at were very interested in large scale business production, yeah. you know, and that actually when you talk about modernity, arts and crafts as well, women played a very large role in in arts and crafts being thought of through a modern lens at this time. So with the two women that, that I'm particularly interested in, in investigating, uh, Hilary Bourne and Barbara Allen, um, you know, they started working together from 1935 and they were in work together for, for 40 years as a partnership. They were at a very particular time of the arts and crafts movement that was uh, um, not only that that you could have these these um, you know handmade beautiful uh, romantically produced. I keep coming back to this word, but these, mm. these this idea. But actually, women as consumers bringing in the consumption of craft into their homes required the production of arts and crafts material of, of these products on a larger scale to more people. That is modern, right? Mm. So I'm very interested in how progressive 
the two women that I'm looking at are on, on not only their, their design aesthetics, uh, but also their business practices, the scale of their production and the reach of their work into very, very big public buildings um, on, on movies and all sorts of things. So we can get up to that. It is really important to sort of the, the, this idea that arts and crafts has been modern and that this was a time in which women were involved in the development of, of thinking and consuming that modernity as well. It's it, it's funny with arts and crafts because it, it feels like it's alternately soft and hard. Uh, soft being, oh, that's kind of women's work. That's just, you know, their hobbies, like just get them to embroider something, you know, um, and while, while the men go to work. Yet at the turn of the century with these with these um, men who really in, in the UK really started to get interested in in this crafts movement, then it becomes this really artistic, really, you know, professional, um, intellectual craft. And then again, women are kind of almost like thrown under the bus and then the men are taking over. So again, this idea of different voices and kind of exactly as you're saying, bringing these women to the fore, bringing these business women to the fore who were actually um, really integral in uh, at this kind of mid-century, uh, mid-century level. And, and bearing in mind as well that women weren't allowed to join the Arts Workers Guild until 1964, right? So there's these homosocial male spaces surrounding networking and, 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 and having this club of men, you know, so... Obviously, women were operating their own prince, their own networks outside of this. You know, mm-hmm. they they were in business. They did have businesses across London and across the UK. They were networking together. So there's also there's also this this business space and this production space. So Hilary Bourne and Barbara Allen have their, their their workshops in Ditchling, but they've got their, you know, shops offices in London. So they're very much part of a scene, I think, that's overlooked and under-investigated where, where women were networking <laughs> amongst themselves with, with business intentions, you know. Um, it, I, think, I think that there was a, there's a really good article written by Suzette Warden and Jill Seddon, um, where they make they talk about women designers in Britain in the 1920s and 30s, and they really make the point that the practice of design is judged by its output, where designers are pitted as the heroes of the production process, and obviously designers do play a really significant role, but this decontextualizes production from the consumption and it glorifies and and tends to have a gender bias of glorifying men at the forefront Mm. of the movement and this singularizes it right whereas and and dismisses the idea of collaborative approaches and the social context that can go around them and this very much often these these collaborative approaches are, are often the approaches that women take with their work and that's what we see 
with with Barbara and Hillary that they worked together for 40 years yeah. you know and that they had their their workshop was full of women you know so what was the the social context and how did those being women's spaces um affect what they were what they were producing um I think it's a a, a really interesting and fascinating fascinating line of inquiry yeah and you've got this idea that women are pitted as consumers and men as producers and this idea that again when women are you know um working away on their little embroideries and then the men and that's and that's women's work and then men take it and then they go you're not allowed in our club you know we're the only ones that can do this and you're just like (laughs) You know, like, I mean, it's just classic. <laughs> yeah, at the, at the end of the day, Barbara Allen and Hilary Bourne were leading British mid-century textile designers. Mm. They lived together, they worked together, they designed, they weaved, they ran a profitable business together for nearly 40 years. And and what we're looking at is the evidence of this that's in the Ditching Museum of Art and Crafts collection. So there's photography, you know, of their workshops. So we had such a blast the day we, we went out, didn't we, mm. Natasha, the, and, and looking through what was there in the collection. All these different types of evidence. There's literally samples, the most wonderful collection of samples of their work, of their weaving. Mm. There's mm. there's photography of the workshops, but there's also um, uh, uh, local records that feed into it as well, including like plays that they were that they were on stage in, you know, with with, with local local productions. Mm-hmm. There, there's also um, I was really struck by by um, uh, magazines that featured their work, yeah. and in particular, there was a, a very famous work of theirs that they're not really credited for in the way that other designers are, including the 1951 Royal Festival Hall, the interiors, the textiles for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you go on the V&A's website and you look up the Festival of Britain 1951. There's actually a photo of the inside of the Royal Festival Hall, a black and white photo of the interiors, you know, whiz bang, modernist, brutalist architecture, da 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 da. And underneath, credited for the furniture, are Robin and Lucy and Day. But strikingly mm. in the background, there's these incredibly modernist curtains floor to ceiling so really really high ceilings in 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 the brutalist in the brutalist building and and they're the they're the work of of Hilary Bourne and Barbara Allen and yet their name doesn't appear credited in mm. the photograph so they've been overlooked you know they they've they've they they aren't as renowned as as Robert and Lucy and Dave, for example, to the extent that they don't get mentioned when they do yeah. um, for for the interiors that they've co-produced, and and again, that's why I think it's really exciting to to bring out their story and to look closely at their work because they were really, really, really significant. They they did the interior, the soft soft interior of the the Royal Albert Hall. They designed costumes 
for Ben Hur. You know, they they produced materials for first jet planes, the interiors. You know, so these are these are very modern production job lots in mm. themselves, right? Like you couldn't get more modern than than the Royal Festival Hall. Yeah, um, and and right? Southbank Cinema at the time, and and Heathrow Airport, just as that had been um, opened. Exactly, um, jet planes. You know, yeah, come on. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. also this idea of. Um, which I think is really interesting of the brutalist architecture versus the hand loomed weaves and the natural vegetable dyes. And again, that kind of contrast, which feels um, really, you know, that could be done now and that would feel very, very exciting and modern. Yes. And, and to sort of describe their work, it's, it, it is modernist. Mm. You know, it does have these brutalist values, these, you know, textiles that are navy blue verging on black with, made with, with natural dyes, black tips, but with one little white thread going through them. You know, mm. that was really, really fit with those interiors and the design of the time and and the aesthetics at play when we think about the Bauhaus, you know, when we think about the brutalist. All of, this, is, this is very much of that time. Um, however, as you say, they're using natural dyes, but the quantity of Sussex blackberry tips that must have gone into the vat to make the dye for that size then brings us over to the conversation about how big were the vats that they were using, <laughs> you know? Like, and, and, and how big were the <laughs> Yes, but the, it's, a, it's a really significant point to make, right? This mm. We're hand dyeing some small things in a, in a studio, in a workshop in Ditchling using some blackberries. We just went picking, you know, when we went out for our walk with our dog, this is a completely different scale of production. Yeah. Um, and, and when you think about those, those, those jobs, those, those commissions that we've just talked about, really big quantities in the orders, right? Costuming for Ben-Hur, thousands yeah. of people on set. Mm. This, the massive engagements. So very interesting to see that they're they're managing to to hold on to some of the values of production, such as natural dyes, but that they can do it in the scale. And and it must it must be, there must have something to do with that about the machinery, the equipment that they were using, and that itself it must have been modern as well. I mean, it feel it feels very contemporary at the moment, and this kind of uh, that, especially. I think um, I think that the lockdown has kind of concentrated this idea, but we're kind of reaching back towards natural. You know, we were just talking about having all these plants in our on our houses and yeah. our flats before before we started this conversation. But <laughs> the idea of like reaching back into nature and everyone moving out of London to go have gardens and green space and decide, you know, how many people on Instagram are na- now making these kind of like traditional, ancient, natural dyed, costumes and all this kind of stuff and it was really exciting when we did go for our um, kind of visitation day at the museum and there was a a little book um, about the natural dyes and how to create the different colors and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff and it's and it's just it's 
it's like a process as old as time, but they were then utilizing that for their contemporary context. And as you say, these like massive industrial, um, at, a, at an industrial scale. Yeah, I did. I think I'm, I personally, I, I was so affected by the appeal of the design. It felt minimalist, cutting edge, really contemporary palettes. Um, you know, these navy blues, these reds shot with white, you know, like really, really, really sexy work, you know. And using bamboo within it as well. I think they went over, it might have been someone else, but um, they went over to Japan and went and spent time with a specific, um, was it Potter, I think it was, and Dyer, but like, again, this kind of Asian, Japanese influence, minimalism coming into the design as well. So they were really, you know, they were doing it. They were. They were. And again, that comes from that comes from Ditchling's own local history because it it has strong ties with Japanese ceramicists. Um, so it's 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 really quite interesting that they were going, you know, that they had this relationship with Ditchling, um, came back. Um, I guess the, the the sad thing that we need to share with 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 the listeners is that. It, the tragic story that Barbara died in a fire in a hotel in Cambridge in 1972. And as a consequence of that, Hillary moved back to Ditchling. She jumped out a window and survived and, and was very badly injured. Mm-hmm. But her grief brought her back to Ditchling and she was, she, she closed the business she mm. she wasn't able to cope. She wasn't well. She wasn't able to continue mm. the work, and I really think that says something about Ditchling being a retreat and a home and a place of comfort for her with family that she had there. But I think as well, it, it's it's something that we are seeing, as you say, in in our contemporary lives with the lockdown that people are moving out into the countryside again, aren't they? As mm-hmm. a way, as, as a spiritual retreat and a, and a healthy place to be. And then we're seeing again this, you know, in, at the same time, this resurgence in art and craft practices as well, you know? So I think you're absolutely right. It feels timely to be having this investigation when, when we look at what's going on around us today. Yeah. You know? and, and it's so interesting to find these, the relevance of the past to our lives today as well I think really helps us locate that, you know, it's a funny old time we're living in. <laughs> it really is. And, and finding solace in nature and then that feeding out into creative artistic practice is something that's healthy for all of us to do and, and something that has had a long tradition, particularly in this area in Sussex. Yeah, and that's what's, uh, I mean, stemming from that, um, there was this this period for Hillary where she goes into this deep depression and actually 13 years after Barbara's death, Hillary's sister, Joanna, who also lived in Ditchling, as uh, she was brought up in Ditchling, she suggested, why don't you create the museum? Um, 
And that is essentially why the Ditchley Museum exists is because it was it was this kind of massive project that Hillary could could get into and, um, you know, showcase and celebrate their work together. All of the other artists that were involved um, in the kind of Ditchling craft circle. And um, that is, you know, that's why the museum exists. And again, this idea of, you know, how how does mental health, mental health and, and depression and anxiety, it doesn't have to have a, you don't have to have something be produced from it. This idea, you know, this kind of sure. capitalist idea, we must produce, we must create something. Sure. But it is interesting that if you go there, you wouldn't know that this came out of essentially somebody's grief and not only some random person, but actually someone that was really integral to the Ditchling Crafts um, circle. That, that I think is really interesting because the fact that she grieved so hard, you know, the fact that she couldn't continue her business um, really speaks volumes. Well, it says everything about how absolutely integral to the success, their collaboration. Yeah, intertwined. Yeah. Yep. yeah. 100%. 100%. And this idea that, you know, they did, neither of them got married. They did live together all this time. They were in business together. Mm-hmm. You know, that they were sharing a hotel room when the fire happened in yeah. a public space, you know, a public venue. I, I think that just we don't need... Like I said right at the start, we don't need to know the intricacies of their intimate life, but what we do know is that they were intimate Mm -hmm. and that this was core to the success of their business. They worked together, they lived together, you know, they created together and they ran business together. So she couldn't do it without without her. Mm -hmm. I just think that's so tragically sad, but it speaks volumes as to the importance of the relationship to the to the creative outcome yeah for them definitely um and I mean another uh there was a lot of um men who were craftspeople in Ditchling um and we've kind of gone away and looked at all the women that were involved and and there was a woman called Amy Sawyer who was actually she was before Hillary and Barbara and she was actually even before any of the men got got going <laughs> um, and and she she was um she was Victorian she was born in 1863 and she was a very unusual and prolific um artist uh, who had an interest in like folk tales and in witches and in fairies. And she was really a polymath artist. She was a painter, illustrator, textile artist, playwright, costume designer, seamstress, painter. <laughs> you know, she was, she was basically <laughs> polymath. <laughs> yeah, she was doing everything. And yeah. um, she, she, uh, she exhibited at the Royal Academy and at other galleries and she's almost forgotten now um but interestingly her plays which were called called her sussex sussex village plays um <laughs> they were written while she lived in ditchling and remember ditchling is small right yeah. Yeah. so 
she actually recorded the histories of her friends, of the artists that were there and included various members of the of the guild, but also of um, Joanna and Hilary Bourne, the sisters. Um, and Hilary performed in Sawyer's plays as a child. Yeah. Um, and it's... Uh, when I when I mentioned at the start, she actually um, she became disabled through the use of toxic paints, and this withered her hand. So this idea of you know this kind of um, cliche of an artist suffering for their art, and because she was you know unbeknownst to her, obviously she was using toxic paints, and I think they went under her fingernails, and that kind of created created the problem. But again, this idea of disability and, and working within your disability. Um, and also disabilities that you inherit over your life, you know, you, you're not necessarily born with a disability to have to experience a disability. And as we progressively get older, and as you know, I think it, it, this, this idea of, uh, you know, COVID and lockdown, and all of us having the time you know, in, in our own ways to, to sort of reevaluate the pace that we're living life, mm -hmm. you know, to reevaluate the cost that, that work and travel and the, the intensity of, of, of the production that's demanded of us within, within the professional realm, you know, these, these things come at a price and often that price is to our bodies our health and our well-being you mm. know so it's it's both our mental health and our physical health and so I think it's you know the idea it's such an important message that I think we need to talk more about in society really the idea that there's the disabled and the non-disabled yeah. is is a false construct you know like who knows what's going to happen to us and mm -hmm. in the world we live in, what are we doing to care for ourselves, but also understand that disability is something that can happen over time and that we all need to be conscious of, of wanting to live in a world that has fair access, usable services. You know, these aren't a concern that should just be the concern for those who are disabled now. This is a complete, you know, a concern that we should all hold and we should all be caring about opening up. You know, the, it, it's not that a, a building um, um, is, is, an, is an accessible, it, it had, you know, and is inaccessible to, to those with disabilities. It's that it's not yet made accessible, you know. And, yeah. and I think that that's really important when we start to think about what can we learn from the past that's relevant to us today. Mm. That for me, Amy Sawyer's story, I find particularly relevant, you know, mm. to, to our understanding of the place of disability in modern society and how we cater and care and provide access for those living with disabilities. It's about 22% of the population are classified as, as disabled. So that's essentially one quarter of the population, okay? And yet... Things are so inaccessible. And this idea, exactly as you said, as you get older, there are more ailments, et cetera, et cetera, and people become disabled. So this idea of, oh, well, I'm not interested in that because it doesn't personally affect me, or, well, it affects my grandma, but she's really old. Again, as you say, this kind of idea with COVID, suddenly people are very aware of their health. And yep. this is something that people haven't had to think about 
um, because essentially this is a let's you know let's call it a plague and at times of plague everything shuts down and you know in the victorian area with like tuberculosis and stuff like this um people were just much more aware of that and i think people are much more aware as well about mental health and anxieties and like meeting people and going out all this kind of stuff really does have an effect and as you say the idea of disability does actually affect us all and we should all be interested in it and we should all be interested in making things accessible and i know that you've run a lot of um kind of online events um during during covid and this idea of let's keep that going even when things open up let's have these different ways of accessing events and i know there's some disabled people that are like i've never been more engaged with art and culture because I've been able to actually see it. So again, this idea that I think it's really important that we keep on going, okay, how can we, um, how can we facilitate different people's needs? And that's not, that's not because, oh, my friend happens to be deaf or something like this. You know, it has to be more ranging than just our kind of um, close proximity. Yeah, and as a cultural producer, I'm just always pushing myself to improve my practice around these things as well, you know. If I'm doing anything visual online for a Zoom event, making sure there's an audio description at the start of it and making sure my guests are invited to do that as well, you know. Just trying to get these mechanisms in place as standard good practice Mm -hmm. when you're producing events, you know. Understanding that we're moving into a realm of blended accessibility. So as you say, not just going, oh, lockdown's over, let's forget Zoom events now absolutely not you know I think we're moving into a more textured uh, form of of accessibility you know a more a more uh, um, multiple versions of what it means to engage to put on events to be involved and I'm interested in seeing how we can open that up in in research practices as well you know mm. how to make museums their collections and and material culture available to to more people and so I think I think increasingly museums are getting very good at this providing accessible spaces as a priority in redesigns when they have the chance to redesign spaces but I'm also interested in things like loan boxes where where you can take the museum to people Mm. right where you can take collections out of the museum all these things are really coming up for me both with with what we've been thrust into because of COVID over the course of this project, but with this project as well, you know, looking back and thinking about Amy's Amy's history and the fact that she inherited the disability has for me been been a very interesting thing to sit on and understand both as an artist and a cultural producer. Um, and it does really always it, it always helps to be reminded that we can get better and better and come up with more creative solutions all the time and that accessibility isn't predefined and predetermined what it means that we can expand these boundaries and and these online digital events I think have been a very good you know very good good um, um, example of that um, as you say that they've just brought history and art and design and performance 
to wider audiences through the platform. Mm. And I'm interested in seeing as we progress how, how we can use spaces like museums, but then broadcast out of them as well, so that we're not just doing online Zooms from our home, but that we can do online Zooms from the museum, you know, as well. So all of these things, I think we get to, we get to explore with this project and it makes it very exciting, you know, bringing different voices in brings more to all voices, you know. I always say that queer history and dis- isn't for the queer and, and the history mm-hmm. of disability isn't for the disabled, you know. The more we know about the world, we live in it and the different textures of life, the richer all our worlds are and our understanding of our place within it and the people that we live with, you know. And the way that we behave towards others. Yes. Uh, you, you know, I'm, and there is a thing of we don't know what we don't know. And because with disability as well, because it's such a huge spectrum and there's so many different types of impairments and disabilities and illnesses, we can't tick every box all all at once. But we can certainly, you know, keep on working. And as you say, in different spaces, predominantly I work in theater, you know, this idea of how let's try out different modes. Let's Mm. try out audio description alongside creative integration with access alongside relaxed performances and all this kind of stuff. I mean, speaking of events, we are fingers crossed going to do a couple of interactive live events at the museum. We don't, know exactly when but that's going to be on the website um do you want to talk a little bit about what you're thinking in terms of of your project and of course we're going to definitely do we're going to do zoom as well as live aren't we yeah look and i I would encourage people to keep their eyes on on the website actually moving forward um when we'll be able to hopefully soon depending on how the next opening up stage goes um um really think about putting some definite dates in the diary Mm -hmm. but i would certainly like to do a pride event where we queer ditching museum of art and craft um where we bring out objects from the collection that that um, relate to the people that we're researching and give audience access to them and also you know engage with some performance in that space Mm -hmm. Um, I'm really interested in in opening up the back of the museum and making it front of house you know bringing collections out bringing talks out explaining and sharing research in progress for me that's a very dynamic way of working that also disrupts the hierarchy of museums as well so that it's not just sort of top-down finished curatorial learnings and research presented to the audience on a text panel you know I think it can be a much museums are becoming much more dynamic spaces now bringing people in with their ideas and their knowledges and their lived experiences to contribute to this engagement process that is research you know research as engagement curation as co-community collaboration these are the kind of things that really excite me Um, and so it's certainly what I'm I'm going to be thinking about with queering Ditching Museum of Arts and Crafts. <laughs> yeah, you're right, because when we went on our, our visitation day, um, Donna, who's the curator, took us in one by one into the back, into the archives. And that was one of the kind of um, most special moments for me because it's like, oh, I'm getting to see something secret and something hidden. And, you know, I don't care that it's in amongst all these like other carpets and rolled up pieces you know 
And I think exactly as you say, it's it's this kind of seeing the, seeing the archive, you know, imagine going into the British Museum and getting to go in and see that warehouse full of all these different, that's, that's where it's the really exciting stuff occurs. Yes. So we'll, we'll definitely be bringing some of the collection out and, and talking about the work of these women and, and opening up to conversation, you know, that's, that's really what I'm interested in, mm. that collaborative process with, with communities. Um, so yeah, looking forward to planning that this summer. <laughs> yeah. And then in terms of what, I mean, again, nothing is, um, uh, nothing is pinned down, but, um, in terms of, because you're working as a curator, I'm working as a theater maker, artist, essentially. And this idea of doing a, an audio, audio described tour of the museum of certain pieces, but having, um, possibly the three women, um, Hillary, Barbara, and Amy, basically giving you a guided tour of the museum and this idea of what do they think of pieces, what do they think of people that made them, you Gorgeous. know, that kind of gossip. Um, and <laughs> obviously it would, you know, it is fictional, um, but this idea that you get to view the museum from their eyes. So I think that could be really fun. And you can do, again, you could have it online because it's audio described. You wouldn't have to be there to. to yeah, so of- interesting, Natasha. I was, I was so enjoying working with you. It's so nice to have these this this creative dynamic element to mm. what and we're it feeds exploring. yeah and it feeds each other doesn't it so that's that's really exciting i mean i guess to kind of end on our intentions of the project and this idea that you know it's called different voices but the idea that you know different voices are, are our voices the majority of voices <laughs> yeah they're our voices they're the voices of everyone around us you know there's you're, you're exactly right they're the majority of voices mm. actually not so it's it's different voices as a majority um and and a way consequently of of listening to them a way of hearing more about the reality of the world we live in because Mm. it's a a very rich vibrant place because our voices are different from one another yeah and also that I mean that you and I feel very strongly towards and also Ditchling the idea of bringing these female crafts people giving them a platform highlighting them this idea you know 52 percent of the population are women and yet oh there's only three women that have ever been discussed in history like joan of arc <laughs> and like um uh, who else who else have we got like queen elizabeth the first you know <laughs> that, that horrible one bloody mary um <laughs> been a pleasure um, to talk to you natasha yeah it's yeah. great to speak to you and um let's keep on going yeah, um, we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll, we will have more information and, and the programme will develop. So the, the website is definitely the place to look to find out what's going on soon. Yes, absolutely. Well, great to speak to you. Me too. Bye. Bye.
Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.